What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. I just had to see the band again. I saw them with Dylan in 74. I really went to see him, but the band just blew me out. Their words, voices, everything, said 17-year-old Richard Palmer, who had hitchhiked from Minneapolis and was attempting to buy a ticket for the show. This may be the last time I'll ever be able to see the band unless they make the movie. Then we'll always be able to see them, said Billy Mudry, who had seen the band over 20 times and was dipping into her savings to make the trek from New York to San Francisco instead of publishing her book of poetry. The band had meant something. Their music had spoken to many, whether that meant flying from another continent, taking a train cross country, selling their worldly possessions, or quitting a job. Even the slightest hint that the band would hang it up caused a reaction, a tidal wave. And it wasn't only from fans. The press and music establishment as a whole were shocked and focused on the show. The New York Times had recently said that the band was perhaps America's most respected rock group. Though the road the group was currently on wasn't as smooth as outsiders were led to believe. As Levon said in The Independent, a UK-based newspaper in 94, Quote, Robbie's lids of his eyes drooped as I spoke. I think he'd been up all night producing a Neil Diamond album, and he looked burnt out. He lit a cigarette with the end of the one that he had just smoked. I'd known him, or thought I had, for 17 years, since we were both teenagers. Eight years in the bars and eight years on the arena circuit had come down to this. Overall, morale was low, and while there may have been some initial shock internally at Robbie's suggestion to throw in the towel, at that point, all the guys knew that at the very least, they had to slow it down, reassess their own aspirations and the needs that the band currently wasn't servicing. As Robbie later stated, none of us truly understood where we were headed, but we knew change was inevitable, before adding rather well that Quote, in the 70s, we had grown up to a certain point, and we weren't living in a dream anymore. We were facing new realities. There was an unquestionable feeling of something coming to a conclusion, a door opening for something else. You could sense it. And while uncertainty hung in the air for everyone involved and feelings were mixed, the last waltz, as it was titled, was about to become a defining moment for a group of four Canadians and one American that had spent the better part of 16 years making music together. Certainly to think that November 25, 1976 was about to become a defining music moment of the decade, let alone popular music history, the alchemy that the band concocted that evening with 17 of music's biggest stars will be forever etched into history. The idea to play a final show as the band was Robertson's idea. 
Though Helm and perhaps other band members did in fact oppose the idea, there was not much many of them could do. There was a level of entrapment surrounding the whole affair. As Levon remembers, he questioned whether or not he and the rest of the group could continue without Robertson if they were so inclined, before Robertson darkly noted, quote, We could stop it, insinuating that lawyers and cease-and-desist letters would get involved. Even Levon's lawyer, Jim Gallman, said that there wasn't much he could do. You can't fight him and win anything, so my advice is do whatever the contract says, even if it makes you puke. Do it, puke, and get out. On October 18, 1976, details were released to the press. The next day, the Los Angeles Times reported, After 16 years on the road, the band, which had put together the most distinguished body of work of any rock group of the last decade, is apparently calling it quits, at least for touring purposes. And the show started quite modestly. Originally planned to include two of the most influential musicians in their lives, Ronnie Hawkins and Bob Dylan. Robbie later said of the decision, we agreed that having Ronnie Hawkins and Bob Dylan join us would be the respectful thing to do. They had both played an enormous part in our musical journey. However, with growing interest, the show became even larger, bolder, and trickier. As more guests began to attach themselves to the project, Robertson emphasized the need to document the concert. Levon saw this as an attempt of Robbie shifting his career and trying to enter Hollywood. Robertson and others maintained that the prospect of capturing a show like this was a good opportunity, and you couldn't pass it up. I don't think we knew it was going to be history, but it did, it did seem like something that, uh, as it uh, progressed, it was hard just to let go, to just to think uh, this thing was going to happen without any kind of documentation at all. It felt like we needed to do something about it. I mean, it started out that we were going to do... Uh, just the, the simplest thing we were going to do, a little 16 millimeter thing, just to get it on film so, you know, someday we could look at it or we could do, and it just, uh, it snowballed. Robbie then went to meet with Warner Brothers Records president, Mo Austin. Austin was a New York-born music executive who had signed the likes of the Kinks and Jimi Hendrix to his label and was in the running to sign the band in 1967 before they signed with Capitol Records. Austin was needed for the project to provide enough funds to capture the specialness that The Last Waltz was turning out to be. Robertson wanted the movie rights and the concert soundtrack to be given to Warner Brothers, though their participation would be hampered by the band's commitment to providing Capitol Records with one more album, which would turn out to be The Uncoordinated Islands, released after The Last Waltz concert. As for the film side of the project, Robertson had several directors in mind, including George Lucas, Hal Ashby, Francis Ford Coppola, all part of the new wave of American movie directors hitting the scene. In the end, it was their former road manager who was brought on to help develop and produce The Last Waltz, Jonathan Taplin, who provided Robertson with his perfect candidate, Martin Scorsese. And uh, Jonathan Taplin, who produced Mean Streets, uh, 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 introduced Robbie to me, and uh, said uh, there's going to be a lot of people at the concert, and uh, the band I felt was that important to, uh, as a group uh, and a figure in music uh, to uh, record their last uh, concert, and I figured at least it would be a reportage. 
Scorsese was born in 1942 in Flushing, New York. As a college student at NYU, he studied film with his first official project beginning in 1963. Scorsese slowly began to make a name for himself in Hollywood, working on several projects including 1970's Woodstock, a documentary about the 69 festival. He gained a significant following after the 1972 film Boxcar Bertha and the 1973 film Mean Streets. It was at a screening of Mean Streets in 73 that Scorsese first crossed paths with Robbie. Taplin had served as a producer, thus he was the conduit in which Robertson and Scorsese in relationship was first formed. Robertson writes that he was simply a fan and an admirer of Scorsese's work, though Helm had his doubts about him, saying that, quote, Robbie thought that the nervous, fast-talking Marty was his ticket into Hollywood and asked him to film The Last Waltz. Regardless of Robbie's true intentions, Taplin arranged a meeting between the band, guitarist, and Scorsese some months before the 1976 Thanksgiving show was set to take place. Robbie, his wife Dominique, and her friend, actress Genevieve Bujold settled in at the Mandarin restaurant in Beverly Hills. Scorsese arrived wearing a dark Van Dyke beard that Robertson claims made his eyes look quite piercing. He came with his wife, Julia, and Liza Minnelli, who was starring with Robert De Niro, a musical that Scorsese was shooting called New York, New York. Robertson pitched Scorsese on the idea and informed him of all of the famous musical guests that would be in attendance. According to Robbie, he could see Scorsese's immediate excitement, since, quote, music had played a big part in his life. And Robertson also noted his use of music in Mean Street showed that he had a powerful connection to it, as did the fact that he had worked on the Woodstock movie. Now, initially Scorsese was hesitant to come on board as a director due to conflicting commitments with New York, New York, his largest budgeted project yet. The musical was a flashy love letter to his hometown of New York. And while he was starting to peak in his career as a filmmaker, the pressure of a big box office hit, which New York, New York ended up not being, started to wear on the director. He developed a raging cocaine habit that wasn't helped by his peers' love of the white powder, including Robertson, who was nursing a fairly sizable addiction himself. On top of that, there were complications around doing both films that included a whole slew of logistical nightmares, and he worried that he'd be fired from his film. After dinner, the party decided to stop by the After Hours Lounge on the Rocks, a somewhat hidden bar located above the famed Roxy Theatre for a nightcap. Robertson continued to hammer his vision of the band's final show into Scorsese's mind to try to entice him with his list of potential guests until the director couldn't relent any longer. Scorsese couldn't turn down this opportunity. He began to privately work on The Last Waltz. With the event secured, it was important that the event went off without a hitch. Who better than the man who organized the band's first live performance, Bill Graham? He was brought back on to produce the event. And ultimately, it was Graham who was perhaps the most responsible for making The Last Waltz into the grand production that it was. He offered the band the Winterland Ballroom, the location of their first show, and gave them the Thanksgiving night to perform. Robertson writes that using the Winterland on Thanksgiving was his idea, though. He also included a full turkey dinner with multiple different courses for all the guests in attendance and brought in an orchestra to open the night. Although the band's Winterland performance would take place only about eight years apart, the first show on April 17, 1969, and the last waltz were quite different. And it's interesting to take a look at. Robertson portrayed in Scorsese's film as a confident frontman, 
felt terribly ill prior to the band's debut, requiring hypnotist Pierre Clement to support him off stage. The April 17th set lasted less than 40 minutes, whereas the last waltz, the band played their first song at 9pm and finished just after 2am the next day. Perhaps the greatest difference between the two shows was the music itself. Due to Robertson's illness and a short set, the 69 show consisted primarily of music from Big Pink numbers. The Last Waltz, on the other hand, contained more than a dozen guests, a horn section, songs from several different eras and genres, and was captured by a fully staffed film crew. Below the surface of The Last Waltz lies a deeper, less palpable, but perhaps more substantial difference. The 1969 show was played by five men not yet familiar with the fame and fortune that was awaiting them a few years down the road. The contrast between them and the five men that showed up on Thanksgiving 1976 is great. There were many new factors at play to the last waltz, including significant mental and physical health problems, disillusionment with the music industry, frustration with burdensome capital records deal, desire to stop touring and settle down, and a growing resentment within the band itself compared to the eager musicians who came to Bill Graham's Winterland in April of 69, this version of the band was in much worse condition. Nonetheless, The Last Waltz was obviously something that deserved to be recorded. The combination of the band's final show coupled with the star-studded guest list would provide to be one of the greatest concerts of all time, and Martin Scorsese was tasked with capturing it. This feat was too great for one man, so Scorsese went about assembling a crew that was arguably as talented in their fields as the performers themselves. For cinematography, Laszlo Kovacs was brought in after his work with Scorsese on New York, New York. Upon meeting with Kovacs in Scorsese's Hollywood office, it was his idea to try something revolutionary with the camera. He said, if you're going to do this movie, don't shoot it in 16mm, do it in 35 It will look so much better. Now, 35mm had not been used for a live concert before. There were technological disadvantages. Would the cameras last the length of the takes needed? Would the cameras overheat? They were also not able to move the cameras, so Scorsese and his team poured over every aspect of the set list to plan exactly where they needed to be and to capture every moment. He crafted charts depicting which camera would capture which performer, verse, chorus, and lyric, and even every movement. He made the bold decision not to show the audience reacting, something common to concert films, because it had been, quote, done before, and I had the feeling that the movie audience would become involved with the concert if they were concentrated on the stage. A few weeks following the meeting and figuring out the camera situation, Kovacs had decided it was too much work for him to be DP on both New York, New York and The Last Waltz. He said he would be happy to be one of the operators though. Marty then went and asked Michael Chapman, his DP on Taxi Driver, to take over. Chapman was in, he too was concerned that the 35mm Panavision cameras weren't designed to run continuously for hours. Thus began the delicate balance of various artists with their different visions. Chapman was born November 21st, 1935 in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Chapman attended Columbia University and worked as a brakeman on the railroad after graduation. He was given his first job in the film industry by his father-in-law, Joe Brunn, a French-American Oscar-nominated cinematographer. Chapman and Brunn mainly worked on commercials and documentaries. Eventually, 
Famed cinematographer Gordon Willis took Chapman under his wing, hiring him to work as a camera operator on several high-profile films, including Hal Ashby's The Landlord and Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. He first worked with Scorsese as a cinematographer for Taxi Driver. After his incredible success in shooting the 76 film, many referred to him as the poet of the sidewalks. Chapman and Kovacs weren't the only two cinematographers added to the project. Fellow Hungarian Vilmos Zygmunt was also hired. Zygmunt was born July 16, 1930 in Hungary. His father was a well-known football player and coach. His mother was a local administrator. Though he was interested in photography as a child, he was prevented from studying the subject due to Soviet government's classification of his family as bourgeoisie. Instead, Zygmunt was sent to work in a factory. He eventually saved enough money to purchase his own camera, teaching himself how to shoot and forming a camera club with fellow factory workers. This experience allowed him to enroll in the Academy of Theater and Film Arts in Budapest, where he studied cinematography. It was there he met fellow Hungarian film student Laszlo Kovacs, and in 1956, there was a Hungarian uprising against the Soviet government. Though the revolt was ultimately unsuccessful, Zygmunt and Kovacs filmed much of the violence from the streets. They then smuggled the film into Austria, where it was developed and sold to CBS and subsequently broadcast across the United States with narration by Walter Cronkite. About a year later, the two of them arrived in the United States. After spending some time in refugee camps in New Jersey, Zygmunt traveled to Hollywood working on numerous low-budget projects as a photographer and cinematographer under the name William Zygmunt. He got his big break when the more successful Kovacs, who had shot Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper's Easy Rider, recommended Zygmunt to Fonda for an upcoming project. Fonda then hired Zygmunt for The Hired Hand, a Western film released in 1971. His work on that film began a decade of success, shooting many projects, including Robert Altman's Images, John Borman's Deliverance, and Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, for which he won an Academy Award for Cinematography. His success in the film industry led him to Scorsese, where he operated eventually on The Last Waltz. Now, in early November, the band went to Winterland to scope out the venue, again from the show. The venue had been an ice skating rink, hence the name, and the venue wasn't exactly pretty. Graham was concerned about the facade and wanted $5,000 to fix it. Additionally, Chapman noted that the floor needed fixing. With a crowd enjoying it, the floor would move, it wasn't sturdy, thus the cameras would wobble. They ended up digging up the floors and anchoring an additional tower that would go on to hold cinematographer Zygmunt and his camera at the back of the venue, allowing for him to get great wide-angle long shots. Graham also wanted visual inspiration, a way to craft a vision that the band wanted to see for the venue. Film and visual ideas were thrown out, including Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburg's The Red Shoes, as well as Gene Cateau's The Blood of a Poet. There was many things that the band wanted to avoid, the tropes that plagued rock concert films of the day. Robbie said on crafting the setting, we could not have those red and green and blue lights you saw in every rock concert documentary. We wanted something more theatrical with backlighting and amber footlights and spotlights, like an MGM musical. With all of the design ideas swirling, Scorsese brought in production designer legend Boris Levin to design the Winterland set. Levin was born in Moscow on August 13, 1908, though he left for the United States in 1927. 
After spending a few years in New York City, where he studied architecture, Levin found his way to Los Angeles, finishing his degree at USC in 1932. The following year, he began working at Paramount Studios, sketching set designs. His first official credits came in 1938's Alexander Ragtime Band, which utilized 85 different sets, a number vastly greater than most films used at the time. Levin received his first Academy Award nomination for the film. He was nominated eight more times in his career, winning in 1962 for his set design on The West Side Story. Scorsese had also hired him for New York, New York, and because of his experience designing sets for period films taking place in Manhattan. And due to Levin's work on musicals like West Side Story and The Sound of Music, as well as his previous collaboration with Scorsese, it made sense that he designed the stage and the lighting for the last waltz. Levin approached the San Francisco Opera and got their access to the storage facilities and came upon the set of Verde's Las Triviata. Additionally, the production team received chandelier designs from Gone with the Wind to complete the set. Robertson wasn't sold on this elaborate decor and he told Levin, chandeliers? I don't think they're gonna go over well with Neil or Bob or the rest of the musicians. These people don't do chandeliers, Boris. In the end though, the chandeliers stayed and became a defining aspect of the set. Levin crafted a stage that was unlike any other, a stage that you couldn't find at any other rock concert of the time. And while Robertson's suggestion of the blood of the poet didn't show stylistically in the final iteration of the staging for the show, it was followed more closely as inspiration for the green room, later dubbed the white room. Helm states in his memoir that the space was floor to ceiling white with cutouts of Groucho Marx's nose postered on the wall and glass tables with razor blades artfully strewn about. For those who don't connect the dots, it was clear that the green room was crafted to prepare for the show in more ways than one. Cocaine was a big, big deal at the time, writes Helm, adding that the room was often filled with people tapping razors on the table. And Clayton Johnson, the stage manager of the Winterland, remembers there was a tape that played sniffing noises and it was one high get together. While camera staging, lighting, and design were underway, the band was working on securing their guest list for the mighty event. Interestingly, when promoting the concert, Bill Graham and co. did not advertise the guest lineup. Rather, it was simply titled, Bill Graham Presents The Last Waltz, The Band and Friends. And Graham later remembers in his memoir, quote, We were testing the waters as to see how many people would trust us. The rationale for which guests would be invited to perform in the last waltz was essentially based on the history of the band. Each of the artists had crossed paths with the guys at some point or another in their 16 years on the road. Quote, it was all the influences of the band, says Scorsese. Ronnie Hawkins, the first guest to appear on stage and in the film, was an obvious choice considering it was him who united Helm, Robertson, Manuel, Hudson, and Danko. Mac Rabinac, better known as Dr. John, was a figure that the band greatly admired. Helm recalled a funny story about an incident blasting his music across the neighborhood in Los Angeles where he was staying at the time. And they had crossed paths on several occasions, including participating in one of their Academy of Music performances in 1971. Robertson said that Dr. John was included in the last waltz to represent the sound of New Orleans. Next, Bobby Charles was also included to pay tribute to the music of Louisiana. Rick Danko had also been friends with Charles and had produced his first solo album. 
upon arriving in Woodstock. Paul Butterfield was a figure who appeared several times in the band's history, crossing paths with them as early as when they were still called the Hawks. Robertson's justification for his inclusion was simply due to his mastery of the harmonica, though his influence on the entire group was quite apparent. Moreover, there was Muddy Waters, who was a hero and a close friend of the band. His newest album, the Muddy Waters Woodstock album, which featured Helm and Hudson, as well as Howard Johnson and Paul Butterfield, had won a Grammy in 1976. His inclusion seemed obvious. Eric Clapton was another obvious choice. He had credited music from Big Pink as an inspiration for him to leave his acid rock group Cream and pursue music with less psychedelic sounds. He visited the band while they were still at Big Pink, later claiming he was trying to work up the courage to ask if he could join the group, but never did. They all crossed paths once again when the band moved to Shangri-La in Southern California, and they played on Clapton's album, No Reason to Cry, including co-writing and singing with him on tracks like All Our Past Lives. And Clapton had built a kinship with Richard Manuel, both of whom were struggling with some aspects of their life at the time. Robertson writes that Clapton's inclusion was due to his representation of the British blues. Ontario native Neil Young was invited to the Last Waltz to represent the band's Canadian roots. He had played on the same bill and or attended several of the band's shows throughout their touring career. Fellow Canadian Joni Mitchell sang back up on Helpless from backstage, but also was another major player in the music scene whose inclusion was clear. Mitchell was close friends with David Geffen, and the band had known her from Toronto. Robertson had vacationed with her and Geffen, and he had been featured on her song Raised by Robbery from her 1973 album Court and Spark. She was, in Robertson's words, queen of women singer-songwriters. Most controversial for The Last Waltz was the invitation of Neil Diamond. From Helm's point of view, he had nothing to do with the band. Robertson refuted this, characterizing Diamond as a symbol of Tin Pan Alley, the genre of popular music from the late 19th century originating in New York City. Robbie had also just collaborated with Diamond on several projects, including the most recent album of Diamond, Beautiful Noise, from 1976. Next was Van Morrison, who represented Ireland's greatest R&B voice, according to the band. And beyond that, he and the band had musical respect for each other. Morrison lived in Woodstock for a time when the band was there, and Robertson recalls sharing the Brown album with him, and Morrison reciprocating, showing him Moondance. Their appreciation for each other's music led to Morrison opening for the band in 69 in their show in Boston, and their most famous collaboration, 4% Pantomime, one of the few bright spots on Cahoots. And you can't forget Bob Dylan. Without Bob Dylan, would there even have been a last waltz? Probably, but it certainly would not have felt complete. Dylan, after all, gave the band the opportunity to elevate themselves into the pantheon of music greats. His influence on their music, especially Big Pink, was far cry from the rockabilly the Hawks had been playing. Robertson boasts of a great and unique relationship with Dylan, though the truth is Dylan had relationships with each of the band members. And if The Last Waltz was a celebration of the history of the band, then Bob Dylan was arguably the most important guest. Robbie approached Dylan, who was apprehensive at first. Quote, when I told Bob Dylan about the final concert, he said, is this gonna be one of those Frank Sinatra retirements where you come back a year later? There's also a few other guests that you don't see in the film, but were there the night of the show. Stephen Stills was also present. The well-known singer participated in the jam sessions that occurred after I Shall Be Released, and Ringo Starr similarly did not lead the band through any songs, though he played drums during I Shall Be Released and in the jam sessions that followed. Faces and Jeff Beck group guitarist 
Ronnie Wood took the stage during those numbers as well. In order to give the musicians a bit of a break between sets, prominent San Francisco-based poets were asked to recite several pieces of work. They were assembled by Emmett Grogan. Grogan had founded The Diggers, a group of street actors, quote, whose action-oriented philosophy and politics were based on autonomy, personal authenticity, and freedom. They were inspired by a group of Protestant radicals from the 17th century England of the same name, who opposed feudalism, and the English diggers got their name because they would dig and plant on the lands owned by the crown, only to be brutally beaten afterwards. Now juxtapose Grogan's diggers, described by Levon Helm as a primal hippie activist group, were inspired by these English radicals. The San Francisco diggers sought to cure societal, cultural issues by acting out alternatives. For example, they began providing free food in Golden Gate Park under the ideology that if you have the ability to feed the hungry, why would you not? Later, Grogan took the opportunity to read a poem at Winterland during the last waltz, and he rounded up poets like Michael McClure, Lawrence Ferningelli, Diane De Palma, Diane De Prima, Frank Reynolds, and many more. They each read a poem. With the guests locked, extensive rehearsals were absolutely necessary in the lead up to the show. Because due to the large number of guests that they would be backing, the band needed to learn to play several songs. As Grogan later mused about the preparation for the show, quote, the bottom line of what has been called the greatest indoor concert ever held was work hard work, mainly by five musicians who had been together for 16 years and had been known as a band for the past 10. Any one of them during the month of old November was attracted by then drawn into the communal effort. Anyone who disdained hard labor was invited to leave. Amateurs were not extended an invitation. A large portion of the rehearsals took place at Shangri-La. Most of the artists showed up to practice. Robertson and John Simon had conflicting accounts on whether Bob Dylan showed up to rehearse, though Joni Mitchell, Neil Diamond, Neil Young, and Van Morrison were all around Shangri-La at some point prior to the Thanksgiving show. Simon recalls that Mitchell had trouble renaming her tunings and chord changes, and it wasn't that she wasn't excellent at her craft, rather the opposite. Few dared to back Mitchell, she was a talent like no other, but Garth Hudson and John Simon worked together to chart out her music. It was remembered by Grogan, quote, John Simon sat alone in a corner of a studio transcribing the session into sheets of paper. He'd later compose arrangements that would bridge any gaps and cancel any flaws. He'd also write in parts for the horn section. Joni's rehearsal lasted three hours, with her leaving unconvinced that the band could play behind her properly. But by the time she returned for a second session, John Simon had written and rehearsed his musical arrangements with the group. They played her music brilliantly, following her lead and maintaining her sound. In Closer to the show on Thanksgiving, rehearsals were hosted at Miyako Hotel, where the band had made it home leading up to the show. The first person to join them was Muddy Waters. As Robertson remembers, as soon as we kicked into Manish Boy, it felt like a powder keg ready to blow. Winterland was also being used for dress rehearsals that lasted 12 hours to allow the cameras to properly be placed for each shot. Each artist came by and went through a number of their songs that they were going to play and were often accompanied by the horn section for practice. The time was also incredibly important for the crew. Backup generators were brought in to support the powerful lighting, scaffolding was installed for the cameras, and Boris Levin put together the sets. 
Robertson recalls giving Scorsese the lyrics to each song that would be played. Marty then took these lyrics and compiled them into a 200-page script, complete with camera and lighting changes. Van Morrison then came directly to the Winterland again. The band really needed to learn and lock in on Caravan and run it down with the horn section. Van had come donning a beige trench coat, and as Robertson noted, it was like he was a private eye in a 1940s movie. I'd never seen a rock and roll singer dressed like a private eye before, and I told Van he looked great. For the Canadian sequence of the show, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, the band had also been trying to get ready to perform Acadian Driftwood with them joining in on the choruses. Next was Ronnie Hawkins, and as Robbie remembers, we felt a deep kinship with our old ringmaster, Ronnie Hawkins, upon getting up on that stage. Hawkins was worried that he wasn't going to fit in, and the band waved off his hesitation. After all, he was the first one the group invited. He deserved to be there as much as anybody. And Robbie later reinforced this with saying, the hawk was our beginning, and if we were going to throw the last waltz, he was going to have a dance. The band brought up Clapton next, and they ran over Bobby Blueland's song further on Up the Road. He was also doing a song he had recorded at Shangri-La with Rick and Richard called All Our Past Lives, and these rehearsals weren't without their hiccups, including their backing orchestration. Their horn section led by Howard Johnson on tuba and slide, Larry Packer on brilliant violin, Tom Malone on trombone and slide, Jim Gordon on his tenor horn were all friends and regulars of the band. The issue lied with the two Hollywood studio musicians who arrived with their trumpets complaining that the limo was dirty and that there wasn't enough beer or coke, and reminding everyone that George Harrison had treated them each to a thousand dollar bill in appreciation of their presence at one of his concerts. As Grogan remembers, Rick Danko rose to the occasion, telling the pair of trumpeters that the remedy was on the way, quote, when it arrives just get in and it'll take you straight to your desires. They were confused. What, what is it? Asked the trumpeters. A taxi, said Rick. Cows may come, cows may go, is all it says. And the trumpeters did just that as soon as the taxi showed.
Now, with the rehearsals going on, Robertson had an idea to make his performance a little bit more flashy. He had bought a red Fender Stratocaster used from Norman's Rare Guitars around 1973. The instrument began a life with the red finish and made its mark on some storied performances and albums. Quote, I used it on the tour with Bob Dylan in 74, and I used it on Planet Waves, which we recorded with him right before we went on tour. It's also on Before the Flood, the live album for that tour. But when he was preparing for the last waltz, he thought he'd marked the occasion. Robertson told guitar aficionado in 2011, they dipped the body in bronze just like they do with the baby shoes. They dip it in, leave it in for a minute, and then take it out. So then they put the guitar back together again after, and it had a completely different sound to it. Just like you would think, it had a more metallic sound, and I liked the sound I got out of it. And it was heavier. The guitar would go on to become part of the memorable night. Now, on top of all of the planning and the rehearsing and the production elements of the concert, there was still more. The band was trying to finish their work on their last studio effort, Islands. The long nights and the pressure were mounting. They'd have to finish the album after the show. After rehearsing for the concert from noon to midnight on the Sunday, the band called in engineer Ed Anderson to help them lay down the final tracks for Islands. As remembered by the mood crafting the album, the effort was enormous. Everyone was confident, polite, and courteous. They were careful of one another, but not skittish or overly cautious. Each individual gave it their best shot. One excerpt that was particularly telling of the whole situation was the band found themselves in between Rick and Robbie, who stayed up until six in the morning one night to complete harmony vocals on their song, Living in a Dream. Upon completion, Robbie said, I didn't hear a clash. You either are singing the same note as somebody or you got it right. Rick followed. Got any inspiration, anyone? It went on like this until Rick got the harmony down perfect, but it was six in the morning, and as Grogan remembers, wired with nervous energy, Rick wanted to continue polishing. Robbie sat motionless, staring at the knobs on the control board. There was a long moment of silence, then Robbie said, if I don't go home right now, I'm going to cry. No one laughed. He wasn't kidding. The week had been long, the strain of orchestrating the guest artists and the horn section and the album, the Thanksgiving Day event itself was painstaking and beginning to take its toll. Nobody's nerves were racked, everyone was just overwhelmingly tired and glad to leave, perhaps to sleep, strengthen the muscles to tackle another 18 hours in the studio before departing midnight on Monday on a flight to San Francisco. With everybody arriving, they climbed from the aircraft into a rented Winnebago for half an hour to drive to Hotel Miyako. Two members of the band were not present, however. Levon Helm had decided to drive with his children and friends in his mobile home, and Garth Hudson had remained at Shangri-La to finish his work on the studio album. As Emmett Grogan noted, even as the curtain was falling, they remained the two most independent members of the band. Thank you for listening to The Band of History, part one of our multi-part Last Waltz episode. So it's, it's been a long time coming, but like I've said for the past several months, the episode revolving around The Last Waltz is a big one. I wanted to hit on multiple parts, the lead up to the event and the film. That's something that, you know, we had the rumor to. Uh, the show here, we're going to go over the event itself and what actually happened, and then we will go over what happened with the film. 
obviously the event itself was much longer there was more performances the film has essentially the highlights as well as additional pieces like the performances on the mgm stage and interviews that took place which we will dig into deeper in later episodes we didn't want to rush this so you know apologies for taking a little bit longer than expected but um, we just want to make sure it's good we really hope you enjoy this episode uh, and make sure you check us out online you can find us on facebook instagram and twitter at the band podcast we post a lot of fun engaging content there if you have any questions or comments make sure uh, you poke around there and leave them and uh, hopefully we answer them if you're interested in supporting the show and getting additional contents, uh, early access to the episodes, articles, and other little fun tidbits, you can go and check out our Patreon. The support for the show means a lot. We've got a lot of wonderful patrons already. Thank you all for being a supporter of the show and anybody new. Uh, you're definitely welcome to come and join us and check out some of the cool content that we're providing there. But alas, we are done this episode and we hope to see you for the next one. Enjoy. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.